Hey, it's Catherine from the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. We'll get right to the show, but before we do, I have a really quick favor to ask. Don't worry, we're not going to get all NPR on you and ask you for money, but if you like what you're hearing, please share it. Share it on Facebook, on your Instagram feed, on your Twitter feed, wherever else you send things out to the world by email, what have you. We need your help in spreading these stories as far as they can go. And it only takes a couple of clicks to let someone else know that we're out there. So thank you so much. And here is this month's episode. You found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM LP Asheville. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is the Soft Boys. Impossible to separate food from its place of origin. That schnitzel will never taste as good as it did on that hillside beer garden in Germany, and that ice cream sandwich may never give you that same feeling it did when you ran out to buy it from the ice cream truck as a kid. So when Marilyn Moriarty, a professor at Hollins University in Virginia, set out to dig a little deeper into her family's French heritage, she found herself immersed in a world where place, or as the French might call it, terrar, means everything. She wrote a piece about the experience called You Are Where You Eat, and she caught us up on the story. The moment I decided to write this, I'd been invited to uh, speak um, at my university where I teach for a a special kind of luncheon. And I thought, well, uh, I'm going to talk about my work, but it it should really be enjoyable and funny and offer something. And so that was the moment that I decided to to write it, but it all came together very easily and very quickly because um, it involved work that I've been doing all you know for a long time. So you can go you can go to this part of France and just this is what happened to me one day that the you could see the sky and the sheep and the grass and and you realize how 
it's all connected and it's all uh, one visual that pulls everything together. I think the French really appreciate that connection between the place and the thing that's grown in the place, whether it's grapes or lavender or sheep. The sky of Normandy is so blue that painters whose work hangs in the Orsay had to find a new pigment to paint it. So a guy told me. The sun that shines in the blue Normandy sky makes Normandy grass that is eaten by Normandy cows that make wonderful milk and amazing cheese. And so the French, and also European Union, recognize the acidity of the soil, the sweetness of the local water, and the unique quality of sunlight that go into shaving grass or grape to make food and wine no mere substance, but a concoction of nature and human stewardship. This quality product is identified by labeling as AOC, Ablation d'Origine Controlée. Under the auspices of the Department of Agriculture, the INAO, Institut National des Appellations de Rosine et de la Qualité defines the geographical regions and conditions that allow a foodstuff to be labeled AOC. In France, quality regional agricultural products are understood not simply as substance, but as a substance produced in very special conditions. PDO signifies a like recognition by the European Union. As an American searching for French family history, the importance of connection to the land highlighted my plight. My long-deceased mother was French. She had worked for the underground, been caught by the Gestapo, and put in German prisons. I came to France to research her history and hoped to learn something from the French family I had recently located. Annie and I were daughters of sisters, but my problem was that I was adopted. I didn't know if they knew or if they knew that I knew. Before we worked as sleuths researching my mother's history, my cousin Annie and her husband Christian tested me to see how French I really was. They tested me through food. Annie and Christian lived in a part of France where the neighbors made wine and the grandchildren raised rabbits for the stew pot. They picked me up at the train station, and after exiting their van, I saw the lovely garden in their yard. Snails waited the leaves of shrubbery. Escargot, Christian said. Do you eat snails? Maybe. A vegetarian, I hadn't yet formulated a position on mollusks. At dinner, our conversation combined food and the war, and it went something like this. Would you like to start with Bernot or some red wine? My friend has a farm and he makes this wine. We will have some for dinner. You don't have to drink the whole thing. Annie spent a lot of time with grandmother, and grandmother told her nothing. Red or white? My neighbor with the farm, he also raises birds. Do you like pigeon? But you eat birds, yes? Poulet, duck, du didon. Didon is what you call it? Turkey. D'accord, turkey. Tomorrow we have fish. Do you like duck? Confit of duck? Annie says that of the three sisters, if anyone would do something, of course it would be Andrea, but no one knew about the resistance. I had eaten neither rabbit nor hare, beef nor veal, not even a frog leg, not even a snail. How could I claim to be of French descent? I was redeemed by cheese. Rochefort, you can't get it there. It is not pasteurized. They cannot export it, Christian said. We have blue cheese. Yes, like gorgonzola, but it is not the same. As I tried this green-veined, crumbly cheese with salty flavor that became smoky, I had to agree. Rochefort has a pedigree. It was awarded an AOC, Appellation de Rogine Controle. The cheese was recognized by a parliamentary decree in 1411. Even Pliny the Elder is said to have remarked on its singular flavor. Only cheese made from local raw used milk cheese, which has been aged in the village of Rochefort sur Solzon, can be called Rochefort. How about this one? Annie unwrapped a cheese taken from a box. She sniffed the package. Christian sniffed it. It passed the smell test. A camembert, the national cheese of France, made from cow's milk. A myth has grown up around it. Pierre Bossard and Camembert, a national myth, tells the story. In the 18th century, one Madame Harel, who lived in a house in Normandy with her in-laws, devised this cheese. There, the regional cheese is Livarot. Madame Harel used brie ingredients in a Livarot mold, producing a hybrid success in the camembert. Supposedly, the idea came to her from a recusant priest hiding in the manor house. There is even a statue raised to Madame Harel. In 1926, an American physician, Dr. Joseph Neerum, came to Normandy for months and also prevented him from eating anything but camembert. 
He showed up in a larger village in Normandy, in the pharmacist's office, looking for train schedules to the town of Camembert. The pharmacist, who was also the deputy mayor, knew that only an American would think it's so easy to reach a remote village. Still, the pharmacist August Gavin helped the American, who went to lay a wreath on the grave of the woman credited with creating Camembert. Before Dr. Neerham left, he gave Gavin $20 to go toward a statue of the founder. Locals pitched in, and the statue was raised. This was a boon to the cheese producers, because they had only recently been denied in their application for an AOC. The INAO said Camembert was not truly a regional, but was in fact generic. Long story short, Camembert never was recognized with an AOC in itself, though the local Camembert de Normandie received one in 1983 after a great deal of wrangling. A blue cheese, a goat cheese, a soft cheese, that is the basis of the French cheese course, Christian explained. You can have more than one soft cheese. And indeed, we did. I shifted from the Croton de Chabagnol to a Normandy Camembert. I could make a meal on this cheese. At the end of the meal, my cousin Annie asked me, Would you like anything else? I was still looking for the opportunity to tell them I was adopted. Considering the way that the French were purists about quality ingredients, I wondered if I dare label myself half French. Would I be the Camembert among the Rochefort? Generic. Or worse, Velveeta. Before I could tell them, I could yet prove myself. The cheese, the one that stays outside the house, too pungent to stay inside, it sat in a little cheese cage on the patio table. The wild cheese, may I have some of that? <laughs> you are truly French, Christian said. Turns out they already knew I was adopted. As we sat back to enjoy the imminent post-prandial dip, Annie remembered something from the war. Grandmother loved popcorn. My father, an American army officer, brought her those kernels when he courted my mother. No one in the family had seen anything like the exploded white puffs. Although grandmother possessed photographs of the other sons-in-law, she made a shrine to my father, giving his army helmet a permanent place on her buffet. German, reading Marilyn Moriarty's You Are Where You Eat. Each month at Dirty Spoon, we like to check in with Jen Nathan Orris over at the Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project. For over a decade, ASAP has worked as advocates to the Western North Carolina's farming community, and their podcast, Growing Local, looks to tell the stories of those farmers. This month, we follow along on one of their farm tours as the community gets to see where their food comes from. This is Growing Local, stories from ASAP about the local food community. I'm Jen Nathan Orris. More than a thousand people visited local farms on ASAP's farm tour in June. 
Come along as we meet an array of animals, go behind the scenes at a hot sauce farm, and truly learn where our food comes from. We are here at the farms at Smith Millworks Complex. Um, it's an incredible array of greenhouses where a lot of Appalachian grown certified produce and vegetables, um, this is where they get their start. And uh, we're here to take a little tour, look around, um, and just begin our farm tour adventures. Hi, my name is Brooke Sheffield. Uh, we are at the Lotus Urban Farm Greenhouse. And uh, if you come on in, I can kind of show you what we're doing here. Great. So right when you come in, we've got tomatoes growing to the left and right. You can see they're all trellised all the way up to the ceiling. Uh, everything's grown into bags. We've got about 100 tomato plants right here. And kind of the showpiece of our greenhouse is our um, commercial aquaponics system. We've moved out of lettuce season, so we're on to basil season because of the high temps. And so uh, here we're raising koi and tilapia in our large aquaculture tanks. So you can come up here and see the fish are jumping and ready. Oh my gosh, you can really see them jump. Yeah, they're jumping around. Cool, thank you so much for yeah, the tour. Yeah, coming in. All right, we've made it to Candler. We are in beautiful Candler at Smokin' Jays, Fiery Foods. We are in a pepper field and there are just peppers as far as the eye can see. We're gonna talk about chili peppers, do a tour. We've got lunch and drinks for everybody. Nice, show us around. You got it. We are looking at about three acres of production here. This is about 30,000 plants. Uh, the field that we're looking at over here to our right is a field of all Caribbean red habaneros. Um, we also grow on another field over here all orange habaneros and chocolate habaneros. So in a short space here, three varieties of habanero, all used for a variety of different reasons. So uh, out of the three of those, uh, slightly different heat levels, slightly different flavors, um, and then the color is what really drives our use of them. So um, we like sauces that look good, taste good, and the color helps drive that on the shelf. Now we're just down the road at Venzia Dream Farm Alpacas in Candler. And uh, there's some really friendly alpacas here. They are extremely cute and uh, very fun. And then inside there's some very cool demonstrations about um, how they process the fiber into yarn and fabric and all the different things you can make with alpaca fiber. Um, so lots to learn and also some super cute animals to meet. This is Boomer. He's uh, about a 12, 13 year old little male alpaca him and Batman back here in the back. He's a little shy, so. He's very charming. He's a, he's a nice looking guy. Yes, <laughs> he thinks so too. <laughs> we have made it to our final stop. We are here at Mills River Creamery in Mills River, North Carolina, and something really exciting just happened. A mama cow gave birth to a calf and everybody saw it and everybody's really, really excited. It, it was amazing seeing the cow being born. The cow stood up and the cow came out of the back of her and the mother immediately started licking her, taking care of her. She knew that she needed to take care of her sweet baby. Was that exciting for you to see? Very much, it made my day. <laughs> it was wonderful. See photos from all the farms in the story on ASAP's Instagram page and learn more about ASAP's annual farm tour at asapconnections.org.
Suzanne and I love you Where is she now? Go and get her She don't want you, but I do She makes us lonely together She still makes you cry She still makes you wanna die Jeffrey Morgenthaler is a god of the cocktail world. Widely seen as the father of the barrel-aged cocktail movement, his bar Clyde Common in Portland is often regarded as one of the best bars in the country. So after the sudden and early death of his friend and colleague John Lemierre, it made quite the waves when he used the moment in a touching memorial on Instagram to call out the industry at large for its dismissive and laissez-faire attitude towards substance abuse in the industry. It's no secret that the service industry has a drug and alcohol problem. It always has. In fact, it's always glorified that aspect of its existence. But as Morgenthaler pointed out in his post, just last year, San Francisco's Daniel Hyatt of Alembic and New York's Maria Pribble passed away at unusually young ages as well, all in the bar business. And I couldn't help notice the unusually young deaths of Pauli Gigante, Benoit Vallée, Judson Allen, Drew Tercy, Angus Brown, Grant Gordon, Hamaru Kantu, Ted Kurtz, Eric Shee, and Chris Becker. And while we can't blame overdoses and alcohol for all of those deaths directly, all were under the age of 50 and some as young as 25, and substances, the stress of the job, all of it are clearly always factors. And that's just in the last year and some change. There's a problem in the restaurant and bar industry, and we can blame it on the stress of the job, we can pin the tail on drugs or booze or the depression-inducing low wages, but the one thing we can't do anymore is ignore it. At least that's what Jeff seems to think. He and I caught up over the phone while he was prepping for a busy day at the bar. Here's our conversation. Fair warning, Mr. Morgenthaler has a notoriously salty tongue, so if you've got kids in the car, this may be one to skip. I mean, it's it's so it's such fucking bullshit, man. It's 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 so comparable. 
I think, to the like, mass shooting gun control <laughs> issue yeah. in that, like, in that, like, the minute that happens, the minute, like, somebody goes on a shooting spree, it suddenly, people think it's suddenly in bad taste to talk about the fact that, you know, having a bunch of guns around is, is a terrible idea. And, right. and the minute somebody in the bar business dies from doing cocaine for 20 years, it's suddenly, like, not time to talk about cocaine. And, like, and right. like let's face it, like, that's, that's the f***ing issue here. It's, like, it's the coke, you know? Like, and I'm not saying, I've never said that I'm some sort of saint and I don't need, I don't need these bullshit wellness seminars or anything like that. And, you know, I've had my own troubles with drinking. I don't really drink anymore, but, like, you know, I've had, you know, we've, we've all... Like you said, yeah. you know, I met you at Tails. It's like, how the hell should I know that I met you at Tails? I was fucking wasted. Exactly. None of us remember it. <laughs> no, we were all wasted. But, like, and the booze is bad enough, but, like, and that we can get to, but it, somebody's got to talk about the fucking coke. Because, I mean, just in, just in that post, you listed four people that died before even hitting the age of 50. One of them before she even got past her, into her 40s. And yeah. it's just like, this is, it's, too much. Yeah, and it's and it's like shortly after that, I was traveling right around. Well, right around that same time, actually, I was traveling, and I ran into brand ambassador for a very well known global brand who was gapped out of his mind. And told me, like, hey, while you're here, anything you need, just let me know. You need, you know, coke. You need you need girls. Whatever you need, just let me know. And I'll get you whatever you need. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, whatever. And I thought, like, there's, there's one place that we could start is the fucking, the brand ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And the cocaine. Like, and I started thinking about this particular brand. I'm not going to name the brand. I started t- thinking about this particular brand and a lot of this brand's ambassadors and how much cocaine all these guys do. Right. And somebody's got to come along and say that it's, you know, it's because the brands are working them like dogs, you know, and, and, and that's true, that they're expected to be positive and upbeat and always on and working for 14 hours a day every day. And that is true. But I feel like somebody could say that the brands could put a stop to this. And it's a, it's a very unpopular proposal. But the brand, yeah. the, some brand, some brand could step up and say, we're not going to allow our brand ambassadors to do cocaine anymore. We're going to drug test for cocaine. And it's never going to happen because the brands are just going to keep supporting these stupid fucking yoga seminars with tails and these, like, low ABV seminars, you know, that are all about, like, health and wellness and stuff. And meanwhile, everybody is just blown out of their minds on Coke. There's a complicated stew of things that caused this to become a major issue. Um, I, think it, I think you're 100% right. It is a lot to do with, you know, big money coming into small industries like bars. And mm-hmm. you have big corporate money coming down into that and those people have a lot of access to substances. And we're also, we're already selling a substance. We're selling alcohol. Um, So we're kind of, in the bar business, we're kind of drug dealers anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of reduces the stigma as to, and makes it one step easier to get into hardcore substance abuse. Um, Oh, and it's always been there. And that's people's, people's other, that whenever you bring this up, people will say, well, that's the way it's always been. You know, coke yeah. and bartenders have always gone hand in hand, and that's just you know that's the business. They're going to say that's the business, and it and it doesn't have to be. You know, you said you you said you don't even really drink anymore. Rarely. Yeah. What did you What did you uh, stop? When did you cut that? Uh, a couple years ago. What motivated that? What was the What was the decision there? You know, I was, I was, I was just drinking. I'd been drinking too much for too long, and I was dating someone who, who finally, you know, said, "Hey, you gotta, you gotta take a look at yourself right now." 
And I did, and I said, holy sh**. Well, that's um, one of the things that I think about in, in this industry, too, is a lot of people are like, what will I do without my shift drink? And I'm like, well, that's probably the first step. Like, <laughs> Yeah, not every not everybody has to ha- get wasted after work, you know? Like, there are plenty of, of occupations where, where, you know, they don't have to get blackout drunk after work every night. Yeah. You know? And it is stressful <laughs> and it is hard and, and, you know, alcoholism is high and, and, you know, part of the reason why because we're fucking public all night, I think, is really, right. you know, getting yelled at by people, you know, so alcoholism is really high uh, it, amongst uh, pilots as well because it's a very stressful job. Yeah. You don't have to. You know, yeah. you don't have to. But yeah, I, yeah, what do you what do you think step started to start weeding this out? How do you think we we turned the tide on there? Uh, well, first of all, the very first thing is if someone has people have to admit that it's a thing, and when somebody yeah. dies, that you know, uh, in an avoidable way, we can't just all stick our heads in the sand. Right. And say, that's just the way it is. People have the very first step is to, you know, what is it they say? The first step is to acknowledge that you have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Once it's but mentionable, it's even, manageable. Yeah, nobody will even mention the fact that this is a problem or this is going on. It's it's always these excuses, you know. Don't, you know, it's not, it's not fair to talk about somebody after they die. Uh, this has always been a prop. This has always been a thing in the restaurant industry. So what are you going to do? It's just all these excuses. So the very first step would be somebody to say something. Well, man, I'm I'm really appreciative that you did. And I, like I said, I thought that that was a very bold thing to say and step up and do. And I think it's a conversation that yeah, I mean, we had all the way over. Why are people hating on it? Because they're supporting it and they're enabling it. And I think that yeah. that's one of the big problems is that we have a system and it's. This makes me think of the whole Me Too movement and all of that, too. How long was I in the restaurant industry and I sat by and allowed people mm-hmm. to make fast comments and lewd comments, and that made me complicit in their behavior? And yes. in that same way, now we're being complicit in people's deaths. And man, that's uh-huh. up. That's real yes. Yeah. I mean, I could take it one step further and say that if you're one of those people that comes to my bar and, and chastises me for having... A uh, certain tequila on my shelf because it's, uh, you know, hurts the farm workers or whatever because it's a, uh, you know, it's a, a manufactured tequila, not an agricultural tequila, and you do cocaine, you are a thousand times worse. <laughs> right. We can even talk about how the massive appetite for drugs in this country has ruined millions and millions and millions and millions of lives in Mexico and Central America and South America. So yeah. I, I always find that's, you know, the other the other thing is the f***ing tequila and mezcal snobs that, that want to that wanna call people out for carrying certain brands that they don't agree with yet they're going out and doing cocaine on the weekends. I don't know. What are the steps that you've taken uh, at your places to try to look out for, for your crew in this way? Well... Uh, I don't, you know, we don't have any specific programs. I don't, I don't hire people. We don't have a culture of drinking and partying and doing coke and doing shots and drinking with our guests at the bar at all. Yeah. So I've got a, I've got a team of very responsible bartenders who don't have drug and alcohol problems. I don't right. hire people. I don't hire people that, that uh, I think that I suspect of having drug or alcohol problems. I don't encourage that behavior. I try to lead by example. I've got, there's 10 of us, and everybody everybody on the team is just an adult. They go home. Right. After work. Right. They don't stay out and, and, and drink their faces off every night. Yeah. So they don't have to have some sort of program, you know. And we talk about it. We talk about it all the time. Every time somebody dies, we talk about how it's avoidable. You know, we're, like, very open and honest about all of this stuff. So, I, you know, the only thing that I've done is built a culture of not doing that. 
And that goes back to something else that you had said of uh, that these were people that were better at taking care of other people than they were themselves. And I think that there is some kind of stigma to the idea of taking care of yourself in the restaurant industry that right. that we we have to be the life of the party all the time and we can't be the ones that are actually like taking care of of our own bodies. And yeah. you know, I don't know what that, that death wish is, but it seems to be kind of there and just about everybody in this community. And in all honesty, we all got into this because we like the idea of that that the party never ends. But yeah. the party doesn't have to have blow and alcohol all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a piece a while back on sexual harassment in the, the restaurant industry. And uh-huh. one of the things that, that kind of, that I kept coming to was I was like, this is, the culture of the of the service industry typically is like a pirate ship. It's literally the last stand of a job that will hire just about anybody. You know? Uh-huh. It used and, to be. You know? Yeah. It used to be, yeah, for sure, and it's not anymore. We've changed. We've we've all worked very hard to, you know, look at uh, look at Jim Meehan, look at PDT. You think that's a f-ing pirate ship? Right. You can't work at P- PDT if you're, you know, if you're a massive sack of shit. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to be, and it used to be like that, but we we gentrified it. We we've been kicking those people out for a long time. And some of, and we're going to keep doing it. And I, for one, you know, I, for one, on my side, I'm going to make it real uncool to be, to do cocaine. Yeah. So if if you want to work with me, you know, being a coquette, that doesn't work. We're going to, we're going to always, me and my team and I are always going to openly talk about how that's not cool at all. Right. And maybe we'll, you know, we might not make it go away entirely, but maybe we can kind of shave the sharp edges off of it. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see the industry at large do? You know, like the the brands, the the bartenders coalition, the... I would like to see the brands catch up with the times. I would like to see the brands not work with people that have drug and alcohol problems anymore. I would like to see the brands take some responsibility for the way they run their their ambassadorships, you know? Yeah. Because I think that, that while brands were on the cutting edge for a long time, I think they're falling behind. I don't, I don't think they're keeping up. You know, the rest of us are sick of it, sick of it and they're still sending out coked up douchebags out to to get the party started. You know, I don't, there's, I don't ever see brands drug testing. Do you? No. Do you see that? No. Yeah. No, of course not. They know, they know what they're doing. They know why they're not drug testing. There was a, there was a young kid who died from Florida who, who committed suicide. Um, I think just about on the same day that, uh, John LaMare died, and that didn't get publicized widely. Right. But he had a he had a, a real struggle with drugs and alcohol, and he killed himself. Mm-hmm. And his 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 bar family was fucking devastated. Yeah. You know, and that's a kid. I mean, we're talking about kids now. We're talking about people that are twenty three that 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 see this stuff and think it's cool and, and jump in with both feet and the, and the local, whatever vodka rep comes to town, you know, they do a bunch of shots, a bunch of cocaine. And, and next thing you know, the kids are committing suicide. Yeah. I mean, I think that what a lot of people don't understand about drugs and well, chasing any kind of high is that it's just that ever diminishing life. Like every time you catch it, it's a little dimmer. A little dimmer. Yeah. And then yeah. at a certain point, you're just like, what is this? And I yeah. think that at that point, you're in you're in the chase. And once the chase is over, like, for a lot of people, it, it makes the tunnel look really dark. And, yeah. And it's hard to, 
to find people in those states and get them out of it. Um, I agree. You know, so maybe maybe we could maybe we could do something to to keep them from from getting there in the first place. Yeah, we serve a luxury, man. We serve something to indulge yeah. in every now and then, not something to build yeah. your life around. Right. And as people that have built our lives around it, that's kind of strange to have to. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you, does it feel hypocritical at all to to change this town like this? It's a, it's a, um, a town of. Uh, no, I don't think it's hypocritical. I think that it's it's um that it's that it's just a matter of of uh of experience. You know, sharing your experience. I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's, yeah. uh, you know, I think it's nice, actually. Yeah. It's just, just growing up. <laughs> I guess, yeah. That was John speaking with author and bar magnate Jeffrey Morgenthaler. His latest book, Drinking Distilled, is available wherever books are sold. To find out more about how substance abuse is affecting the Asheville restaurant scene locally, look for John's story in the upcoming August 15th issue of the Mountain Express. You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour.
Millions of Americans who come from somewhere else to make this country their home. The transition can be hard. No matter how badly you want to be somewhere, the creature comforts that you took for granted back home are often left behind with friends and family. That can be tough, particularly when it comes to the little things, like the foods you grew up on. For Lakshmi Ayer, it was samosas that stirred up the homesickness. Catherine caught up with her at her home just outside of Philadelphia. I think my experience is pretty emblematic of anybody who's moved um, either locally or um, internationally. Uh, of course, if you get transplanted in alien soil, then um, it might resonate a little more. Um, in this case, samosa is just like a metaphor for everything in my life, really. So um, I kind of look at my life as hyphenated. Uh, I'm Indian-American. I don't know if Indian should come first or American should come first. And I waffle between the two, and that's pretty much what I'm trying to ca- capture in that essay. Um, interestingly, like, I moved from India to here, and then my husband and I, we adopted uh, twins here, who were born in America, who are white. So ours is, like, truly, like, a, a melting pot, our family. And I think food is the one thing that keeps me in touch with my culture, and um, there's a lot of memories associated with food and smells. Um so, and most of my writing kind of revolve around that. You know, I'm curious, too, uh, to, um, you know, how, you know, in, in this particular piece, you bring up this idea of of the longing of the, um, you know, of, of, this, of this place that you had as a, as a child at home and, um, mm-hmm. and then the place where you are now. And I, I was so drawn to that idea that, um, that you have to find a way to become content with what you have um, and that there's always a, going to be kind of like this uh, pull between between worlds. And um, do you think that that will ever go away? I don't think so. I mean, like when, when you have grown up in a particular ethos and a particular culture and immersed in a different language, um, it doesn't matter how many years it's been away from the place. Just like one word here, a smell there is enough to kind of pull you back. It's like a vortex that sucks you back in. But having said that, um, as the years pass, I'm seeing myself getting um, much more mellow. And um, the, the pangs are not as intense as they were in 2001 as, as they are now. So I think time does help. A plate of samosas sits in front of me. Steam coils and wisps above the coffee cup dissipating into nothingness. Nursery rhymes play on a loop on my phone. Sahana hums along as she drinks her milk. I pick one of the samosas and feel for a moment how limp it is. I tear a piece and pop it into my mouth. An intense longing for the crispy onion and potato filled samosas of my childhood in Madras overpowers me. I can taste the raw onion chutney, pungent, sharp, and exploding with flavors in my mouth. I feel disoriented. I pull myself together and get through the ritual of my evening coffee before the kids get home. I realize with a start that this month will mark 17 years of my moving to this country. I remember days when such longing would have caused me to drag Kanan and drive over 200 miles for fresh samosas and chat. I sigh and promise to myself that I will not eat limp samosas, no matter how tempting they may seem. At least I will attempt to heat them in the oven instead of the microwave. It occurs to me that this mindset right here is probably a legacy of being an immigrant. The making do, the approximating, the substituting, and the attitude of settling for somewhat similar. I lean back as I watch Sahana clap her hands in glee and realize the moringa leaves in the fridge will not be tinged with emotion for her as it does for me. All around are marks of a person in flux. As I look ahead to our summer in India, I realize the lens through which I view India is not the same with which my daughters will see it. For them, it is an adventure. For me, it is a pilgrimage. 
I am tempted to pull out my wedding albums, to trace my fingers along the younger me as if to figure out if there are physical repercussions of being transplanted in alien soil. Then I realize I pass it each day in the mirror, in my closet full of clothes, in my kitchen pantry. The etchings that come from battling the dichotomy. In the long-distance calls that mark my mornings, in the token celebrations over the weekend of every major festival, the colors that seem faded and the sweets that seem tame, the LED lights replacing the thick smell of oil lamps, the ready-made rangolis that decorate my golu, the silver coconut and mango leaves that stand in for the real deal. I see it in the six large suitcases under the stairs closet, I see it in gold-gilded picture frames that grace the back of my study shelf. I see it in the avocado parathas and the coconut garnish on daikon cubed and curried. The melding of selves, old and new, the faint longing for a life lived in a different universe, and the gratitude for the life I currently live. I reach for the second bite of my now cool and limp samosa and savor it slowly knowing that this is better than no samosa. That was Jesse Shires reading Lakshmi Ayers of Samosas Stale and Fresh. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com, and the incredible art on that page is by Katrin Doze, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, and Paul Choi. Music in this episode by Brian Eno, John Bryan, Michael Ralt, Bermuda Triangle, Portishead, Olafar Arnolds, Franz Gall, Stefan Remble, Francois Parisi, and the Soft Boys. Special thanks to our readers for this episode, Brooke German and Jesse Shires. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume.